Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thank you for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Well, I'm back, and what a good week's break it was, west of the Dividing Range, on a very big sheep station just south of Dirranbandi on the New South Wales Queensland border. The wide open spaces, the clear blue skies and the stars at night, it was amazing, just so beautiful. Time spent with family in the bush, good for the soul. And the country is amazing. After years of drought and struggle, the only thing brighter than the smiles on the faces of our farmers are the startling green crops, the plump cattle and sheep that cover acre after acre of ground between Canberra and the border. Places like Walgett, Canamble, Coonabarabran, Baradine, they've never looked better. So I highly recommend it if you are in the market for a holiday, and let's face it, who isn't? Fuel in the car and off you go. Head west, you will not be disappointed. And let's face it, if you won't, you won't be going overseas anytime soon. And if you are looking for a job, there are plenty in the bush. It was the only slight grizzle from the many farmers that I spoke to was that they simply can't get people to do the work. And with a bumper crop ahead, they need people and it will be an extremely high demand. So opportunity abounds in the agricultural regions of this beautiful country of ours. So thanks to my good friend, Gordon De Brower, the national president of IPA, for filling the chair while I was away. And I have to admit to a bit, just a little bit of guest envy. Now, I don't know Jane Holton, and I have never met Jane Holton, but what a career and what a contribution. And it was a great interview. Now, I think it's important that the APS takes the time to celebrate the Jane Holtons of the world because like many of you who are in the APS, you are either world-class or I hope aspiring to be world-class. In Jane's case, look at it, to have the career that she did in the APS, 33 years, two secretary roles, and then to transition into positions of both global and national leadership in the private and public sector. That says something about our APS. And look, we do celebrate our world champion athletes and scientists and business people, as we should, but people like Jane Holton, they're our world champions public servants, and we should celebrate their achievements. And I know that she will inspire many of you who work in the public service, and it's not just the young women, but it should be everyone. Now, I've had the very good fortune to be part of a gold medal winning Olympic rowing team and the World Cup winning rugby union team, not as an athlete, just saying, but I've learnt the importance of setting big goals and striving for big goals, just as Jane Holton has done. And I hope that all of you in the APS have that same sort of ambition because it's going to be that competitive attitude and that commitment to excellence and continuous improvement that Australia is going to need from the APS as we deal with what is ahead of us. Now, from one champion to another, my guest today is a giant of the Australian Public Service. Mike Pasulo, the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs, is formidable, He's certain about what he wants to achieve 
and he delivers results. He began his distinguished public service career as a graduate back in the late 80s in the Defence Department. But after five years and a realistic assessment of his immediate career prospects, he crossed the lake to the International Division in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. From there, it was to a coveted position on the ministerial staff of the then Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, before serving as the Deputy Chief of Staff to the then Opposition Leader Kim Beasley. He returned to defence as the chief author of the 2009 White Paper and from there to the Australian Customs and Border Protection, where the Labor government handed him the complex and difficult task of undertaking a major structural and cultural reform. He was made Secretary of the Department in 2014 before taking on his current role, which is the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs in 2017, the position which he holds today. Secretary, welcome to Work With Purpose. David, hi. How are you? Before we come to your questions, I would also like to welcome our IPA future leader, uh, Megan Aponte-Payne, who is from the trade and investment team at PMNC. She will be asking the questions on behalf of the future leaders. And Megan, to you. Welcome to Work With Purpose. Thanks, David. Uh, Secretary, I've really enjoyed preparing for this interview. You know, going back, reading your speeches, the various articles that you've written, you write well, by the way, um, the testimony that you've given to parliamentary committees. And I, I feel a real intensity about you and a real passion in your work and, and your views. Where, where does that come from? Uh, well, David, uh, that's a perhaps rather complex question, but I'll try to I'll try to answer it as briskly as I can because obviously it goes to your worldview, your values, your ideological framework, and I mean that in the broader sense of, of ideology. It also goes to your sense of vocation and the sense of purpose that you bring to that vocation. But if I distill it down, uh, and I've said this in a few uh, background biographical pieces, it probably emanates from. Uh, my teen years, which were, uh, by modern standards, very boring, a lot of reading, a lot of reading about history, a lot of reading about things like Australia's involvement in the wars, the, post the post-war reconstruction period. Interestingly, given my subsequent career revolution, the immigration program and how Australia came to be the, the nation that it is. So I've always had a lifelong interest as far as I can remember, and certainly back to my teen years, uh, which, again, I want to stress were extremely boring because it involved a lot of reading. Um, and from quite a young age, I actually wanted to come to Canberra to be a s senior public servant. Uh, how, how old were you when you decided? Uh, it's going to be slightly embarrassing, but probably uh, 11, 12, 13, I'd say. Wow. Mm. And was it, was it a teacher? Was it a parent? Was yes, it a, I, I remember a couple of... Um, uh, partly my parents, yes, in terms of uh, less, less so much the academic or the intellectual framework that came more from school, but in terms of my parents, a very deep commitment to this country strong uh, resonance, of course, with their Italian heritage. Mm. Uh, my mother, uh, who's still with us and uh, just recently celebrated her 80th birth birthday, loves the fact that she came to this great country. The only, um, the only caveat she ever puts on that is that she insists on carrying through until the day she dies her cuisine, uh, as she still insists on calling it. Poor old mum. Hopefully she never hears this broadcast, <laughs> but she <laughs> refers to English food and Australian food in perhaps less than... Uh, it's one of the great gifts, isn't it? ...complementary terms. migrant generation. Too. But, but that strong affinity with culture, with mm. heritage, um, but the sense that Australia is... And I don't say that simply because I'm the secretary now responsible for citizenship, mm. but that deep sense of allegiance and commitment mm. to a land 
that, to use my mother's language and my late father's language, gave us so much. Mm. So that was more on the emotional side and, and, and then but intellectually was, was more through school. Sure. But, but where mm. was, what was their story? You know, where, uh, did very, they, where did they come from? Sure, very briefly, uh, Italian. Um, so uh, Dad, was, who's no longer with us, was born in 37, Mum in 40. Uh, as infants and toddlers, the, the war. My mum's earliest memories were uh, sounds, sounds of gunfire, the, um, the conflict, obviously, with the Germans retreating up the Italian peninsula, the, the Allied forces pressing ahead. Her earliest memories are of, you know, hiding from, uh, from conflict um, and very much a sense of whether it's in Italy or somewhere else, we have to build a better life for our family and we need to go somewhere where that can be... Um, where that can be realised. Uh, in her case, via England, where uh, her siblings had gone to, in Dad's case, directly to Australia, where they arrived in the early 60s. Mm. And what careers uh, did your um, father and...? Very typically for migrants of that generation, Dad was uh, a manual labourer in construction, mm-hmm. including on, uh, on uh, Sydney skyscrapers. I worked on many of the skyscrapers and on the tunnel that we now know, know as the Eastern Suburbs Line out to, out to Bondi. So very physical, manual work. And mum, typically for uh, particularly migrant women of that generation, a, a combination of household duties and then a second job, t- typically in factories, yeah, right. um, you know, putting together, uh, as, as we then did, we used to make a lot of things, you know, speakers and things like that. She worked mm. in a factory which used to make speakers and the like. So which part of Sydney did you... Southern oh, suburbs around in the St George area. Okay. And, and that influence at school, where did that come from? You obviously had the ability, but mm. someone fired the interest in, in you to... A, a number of teachers. It was um, a very typical parish, uh, parish school where a lot of emphasis was placed on... Uh, it was a Marist school, so a lot of emphasis placed on history, reading, um, uh, literature uh, and footy. Were, right. were, were, were the were the referential points, and by footy I mean rugby league. Okay. So it was a it was. Did a Mar- you play rugby league? Yes, it was a Marist school. So so we were. Which one was Marist? Cogra. 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 Yeah, Cogra. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, the home of Ray, Ray Linwall, uh, yeah. Kerry O'Keefe. Yep. In the in the and shadows ti- and, of and, and Tiger O'Reilly, Tiger Bill. Yeah, and mm. Jubilee Oval, yep. not too far away. Not there? too far away. Born okay. in St George Hospital, just next to the Oval, or okay. nearby at least. Yeah. Right. And uh, what position mm. were you? Second rower or a prop? Okay. How'd you go? Did you play rock? Uh, well, I, I, I'm, I'm probably, as I advance in my uh, more senior years, I get better and better with every passing year. <laughs> did you play, like, first 13 at, at school, no, like no, at the MCC? I was, no, or? it wasn't quite that. Because it that. was a very tough rugby league competition. It's that, a tough, um, tough competition. Marist, uh, no, M- yeah, Metropolitan Catholic yes, Colleges it yep, was. Yep, MCC. Yeah. Yep, okay, I was yep. Marist Brothers North Shore for a year. Ah, OK. So we yeah. used to run into on, you guys. On the there. other side of the harbour. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, now That's listen... important in Sydney, yeah. so side of the harbour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, um, you have a reputation for... And sorry, and school, sorry, I should have just... So, to, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, geography teachers and history teachers, really right. a real passion about history, geography, and then that translated into an, into an interest in current affairs, as it, as it used to be called. Yeah. Right. And, mm. and at home, could you, could you take the interest home? Did, did your parents have the, the language and, um, and, and, and the breadth yeah. to be able to, to encourage it to, as to, well? To or? some extent, but, but they, they encouraged us to be... Because their English, from the point of view of reading and writing, wasn't, wasn't perhaps um, yep. up to scratch scholastically, but they could certainly functionally converse very, very well indeed. Uh, but they expected us to hit the books hard and study hard ourselves. Mm. Yeah. But by 11, 12, you were like, okay, I think I want to serve this country yes. in the public service. Yes. Yep. Yeah, okay. 
And is, is there a moment? Can you tell me a story uh, of a particular day where you thought, well, hang on, this is what I'm going to... Well, if we go right Not back... Not a lot of people I don't think... Was, if we go right, right back, it might have been when I bumped my head as a baby or something, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, we're almost getting into psychotherapy here. But you know, it, it, around, around, that, around that period, I can't quite remember the moment, okay. David. Very good. <laughs> All right, but listen, you have a reputation for... Um, how can I put this... You know, uh, knowing what you want, you know, mm-hmm. deliberate, mm-hmm. you know... Where does that come from? You know, that sense of this is what we've got to achieve, this is what we're going to do. Where, is, is that a fair reputation, a fair characterization? Because I've got to say, you know, in preparation also for this mm. week, every person I spoke to this week, they said, oh, who's on Work With Purpose this week? And mm. I said, Mike Bazzullo. Mm. There was a, rea- a reaction from everybody. Mm-hmm. A sure really it, interesting reaction I'm from sure everybody. I'm sure it would have been a very positive, favourable one <laughs> in, in, uniformly and in all cases. But otherwise, send me the names. No, it's okay. <laughs> No, but, but, but again, so, but where does that come from? Where, well, you know? well, a very strong commitment, partly, uh, I mean, we've gone right, right back to my childhood. Uh, we didn't uh, uh, carry the story through to uh, school and uh, an early adulthood. We can sk- skip all of that. But a very strong commitment to the idea that in, in a democracy, uh, decisions have to, be, have to be made by uh, people who are elected to do so, um, but they can't then just wish uh, through their pronouncements or through the words that they articulate for the realisation of those programs, objectives, activities. They need a functioning system of government uh, and administration to deliver. And in our country, I think we're blessed, frankly, in having the Westminster system, which is impartial and apolitical and which is responsive to the government of the day. And I've just got a very simple view. Grand strategy and grand policy settled by those who are accountable to the people. And then it's our job to make it happen. It's not our job to constrain it. It's not our job to sit in the background as, uh, as in the satirical model of a Sir Humphrey saying, geez, Minister, you could do that, but that'd be very courageous. And you end up then taking choices and options away from democratically elected and accountable leaders who are put in by the voters for one purpose, and that is for the betterment of their lives. And if you've got a public service and a bureaucracy that's always hand-breaking, yes, you've got to be prudent. Yes, you've got to escalate concerns. Yes, you've got to draw attention to risks, be they legal or financial. That's part of the job, but it's actually not the centre of the job. The centre of the job is doing things. Now, in a democracy, quite properly, the grand scheme of what is done is set through the democratic process by those who are elected to make those decisions. Then at the next tier down, we come in and it's our job to translate those policies, which are informed by values and, you know, an ideological program and a, and a, and a political program, because that's what a democracy is, they've got the mandate, it's in our job to make it happen and to be responsive and not to be a handbrake. Mm. Now, I do want to get to COVID very quickly, but just, you, you, you've had a, mm. a wonderful career. You know, you've made a marvellous contribution and I was trying you're to find... You're making it sound like a retrospective. You, <laughs> you, you called me distinguished before and I'm thinking, hang on, uh, is, is... Is there news? <laughs> Am I getting news this afternoon? Um, no, but... Well, you've got an AO. You've got an AO this year, which Thank is good. We'll come Thank to that you. have that conversation in a bit. But I just wanted to try to pick a moment from, from this career and, and probably the one that I was drawn to was your time working with Gareth Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, I happened to work at the press gallery um, around about that time. I, as a reporter. I recall, yes. Uh, very good, yeah. Um, I, I had that great privilege of, of being an ABC radio current affairs. We, we, neither of us have aged, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... It, Gareth Evans, I found compelling. 
mm-hmm. um, as a reporter. Mm-hmm. And I used to love getting him on PM sort of mm-hmm. late Friday night and letting him mm-hmm. run a bit. You yep. know, he could really talk and he was mm-hmm. just I, – mm-hmm. I, I found him really good to talk to and, and mm-hmm. we used to have great conversations. Um, what was it like for you? What did you learn from Gareth Evans? Well, uh, Gareth, who's uh, remained a, a friend uh, uh, and, uh, and indeed um, over time a, a mentor of, of mine um, uh, and I still remain in touch, I've got uh, the highest regard for uh, what he's accomplished um, and uh, what he's done over a very long and distinguished career. You can say long and distinguished in relation to someone <laughs> like, like Gareth. Um, and, and he's in fact, um, and I say this about senior people from both sides of politics, a real an example, a shining example of what can be achieved through the Australian democratic process that regrettably you don't necessarily see through the filter of the nightly news or the Mm. exchanges during question time. And as you will recall, David, Gareth could give us as good as he got. So he was was able to return fire. But, and you you have very senior, and uh, and, and I say this very, very directly because I've served both sides of politics, very senior Australians who have served either in the office of Prime Minister or in, in the great offices of state, be it Foreign Minister or Treasurer, who give their professional lives for the betterment of the country from, yes, from their perspective. Obviously, if you're Gareth, you're implementing a Labor program. If you're John Howard, you're, you're implementing a Liberal program. What perhaps voters don't always necessarily see, unless they're very close observers of of the political scene, is the amount of work that goes into parliamentary committees, into consideration of submissions and reports, into the preparation that they put in. It's a very, very taxing role. Now, understandably, it's a very fast-paced environment. It was fast-paced then. It's become even faster now. But not only faster, but now more fragmented through the way in which social media... Uh, operate. So you get this sort of kaleidoscope where you just see it partially. But if you did a proper documentary of a day in the life of a senior minister, a, a Peter Dutton or a Josh Frydenberg in these days, a Gareth Evans or a Paul Keating in those days, what you see are highly intelligent, highly committed Australians, Labor or Liberal, and, and it's mm. particularly important in my role, but I'm saying this authentically in terms of my observation that I've made over the years, that this isn't... Uh, necessarily, it's not a function at all of, of what colour your political uh, stripe is, who are really committed to a program, uh, delivering on that program and working effectively through governmental processes to, to see that realised. Uh, and Gareth was... The reason why I'm giving you that, that long sort of context, Gareth was the full package. Yes, he could get involved in the cut and the thrust and, and I used to sit there in the advisor's box and, you know, the, the President of the Senate would insist on the advisors not reacting. It was pretty hard not to at least rise a smile, particularly when he and Senator Bishop were, were going toe-to-toe when, when Bron was in the Senate and I think she recalls those days fondly as well. But he could also lock the door and you'd see this uh, late at night. He'd come back from a function and work on a major set-piece speech night after night and get it right, get every quotation right, check every source and really construct, say, a speech on Australian foreign policy or, you know, our future trade strategy or whatever. Uh, And that passion and that commitment was as intense in the chamber, preparing that speech, uh, getting prepared for Cabinet. And I see this constantly uh, with, uh, with all of the senior members of Parliament that we have the privilege to work with as ministers. It's a side of that trade or that vocation that is regrettably not often mm. seen. Not, and not well understood. I and think, not well understood, yeah, indeed. Exactly. And that's just Gareth. I could say the same thing about Many John, John Howard, Malcolm Turnbull, Julia yeah. Gillard. I mean, everyone that I've served up close, 
there is that vocational commitment and that passion for for delivering on their program for the betterment of the country. Mm. Okay, so to COVID, you know, you were there, uh, front and centre. Yep. Uh, your de- your department, as as you've described, um, that security function of, of the nation, managing the flow of goods and people. Um, your people embedded into the supply chains, which is again part of the design that you've put in place, which I think has served us pretty well this time round. Um, what your COVID story? Tell us your COVID story. Well, just very briefly before COVID specifically, we, we have worked very hard, particularly in the transition from immigration and border protection into home affairs, to ensure that we've got in our purpose statement, our, our mission and our focus on all policies and programs, in fact, a three-part lens of security, prosperity and unity. We're very explicit about that, not just in terms of corporate slogans, as it were, but how do we think about policy, program and delivery? Is it enhancing Australia's security? Is it enhancing our prosperity and is it enhancing our unity? So you mentioned supply chains, for instance. Mm. There's no point having highly secure supply chains where no goods are delivered, Mm. where ports are clogged, where trade is inefficient, where the cost of trade is burdensome. And this is before you get to COVID. Now, obviously, we're going to have to think about how we reconstruct um, our trading uh, and travel uh, patterns as the world comes out of uh, COVID. So we, we have got, got a very singular focus and we see it in the way that we've organised our functions, the way we um, uh, think about our policy purpose and our, and our mission, our, our approach to policy, I should say, our mission and purpose, so prosperity, security and unity, not just security, I want to stress that. And unity goes to things like social cohesion, multicultural engagement, our work on countering foreign interference, which of course is, is beside the point for the moment. So then coming to COVID... We already had a natural instinct, whether it's colleagues who'd come up through the custom system who absolutely got uh, seaborne trade, airports, the way airports operate. We also had, obviously, colleagues who worked in the visa processing area. Obviously, there'd been a very significant diminution of visas. There has been over time as the restrictions came in, but you've got very good public servants who are competent, multi-skilled, who can then be diverted onto other challenges. We had our staff in emergency management who were very good in terms of crisis preparation and in emergency management. We had other staff in the aviation, maritime, security and critical infrastructure spaces who could be quickly put onto the supply chain blockage issues, whether it was supermarkets. I mean, we started with the toilet rolls and then obviously other matters came to the fore. So the fact that you've got a a staff, well, a department in the first instance and then a workforce that's in that department that has got multiple skills multiple subject matter expertise, uh, multiple, indeed, uh, several uh, strands of quite distinct subject matter expertise and life experience, which has then come together into one synthesised body known as the workforce, meant that we had both large scale, but we had a reservoir of specialised capability across all of those sectors and more, ones that I haven't Mm. even mentioned. And then we were able to wield that that force, that, that workforce against the problems that we had to face. So, for instance, early in the piece, we made a management decision to um, thin out some work, uh, either because travel had ceased or visas were starting to cease, and mobilise at least 1,000 staff and swing them wherever the the problem was. So we're able to make ourselves available to our colleagues in health, in industry and elsewhere, saying, what do you need done and when do you need it done by? And, of course, when my colleagues say, well, what can you deliver? We say, well, we've got 1,000 people ready to go. What do you need done? Uh, A, that was helpful to them because the cavalry was able to arrive because these tend to be smaller departments simply just a function of the way the departments are are organised. 
And we say to it, we said to our staff then, and we continue to say it now: um, Don't worry about the fact that you're not deeply expert in how supermarkets restock their shelves, mm. because you have got to some of the points you made in your introductory remarks, David. You've got the general skills of an Australian public servant first and foremost. Second, secondly, you're a departmental officer, and then thirdly, you're a visa officer or a customs officer. So start with the first of those. You're an Australian public servant. You can problem solve. You can work your networks. You can collaborate. You can draw on other connections, both your own personal skills and knowledge, plus that of your network, and apply yourself to a problem. So we had staff from the get-go working on supply chain issues, trucking curfews. So one of the issues that the supermarkets just to digress momentarily, had in doing the restocking was different councils around Australia, quite properly in, in outside of a crisis, have got different curfew arrangements around trucks going through their back streets. Mm -hmm. We just work with the Australian Local Government Association and in some cases directly with mayors and, um, and town clerks to say, um, hi, we're from Home Affairs and we'd really appreciate you changing, changing your curfew arrangements for the next couple of weeks. And... Team Australia really came together. They said, yep, what do you need done? We said, we need trucks to be able to go in to restock the back of Coles, Woolies, IGA, and yes, yeah, we're on board. Mm. It was a great team effort. Mm. That's fantastic. Now, um, one of the features of this um, podcast is that we invite uh, the next generation, so to speak, um, of IPA Future Leaders, which is a wonderful program, I think, here to encourage the the next generation and the quality of the conversation will improve now where the intelligent people are in the room. Um, but Megan Aponte-Payne, who is with the Trade and Investment Team at PM&C, um, I will invite Megan to address the Secretary with your questions. Thanks very much, David. Secretary, as you'd know, tourism and international education are two really big exports for Australia. At the moment, with COVID, how do we get the balance right between protecting Australians from a biosecurity risk and encouraging the economic recovery that we all need through two of our biggest exports? Well, the first thing to be said, of course, is that it's the medical advice that will guide all policy, and that's uh, and that's been consistently the position of not just the Australian government but all the governments that form the national cabinet. And so the first port of call will be what does SAFE look like from a medical point of view? Now, tourism is probably more challenging than international students. Why? Because for so long as you've got a quarantine period, you're building in a lot of time uh, and financial cost in asking someone to, in a sense, go to visit your country but quarantine first and then come out of quarantine. So intrinsically, unless and until the medical advice changes, and it shouldn't change until it's ready to change, until the science suggests that a change is possible, it's really difficult to see tourism restarting anytime soon with that caveat being that, of course, it's, it's for the medical advice to change before you can start to change your policy setting. Students are potentially a different case in point, as Minister Tien has made clear, as, as has Mr Tudge, the Acting Immigration Minister, insofar as whether through a pilot or similar program, we can work out a way to create almost like a sterile pathway whereby students can come in, probably now with the lockdowns that are having to be put up again because of the situation principally in Victoria. Uh, even on that, we might just uh, need to take a pause. But you can see a way logically, not, not for this semester, which is pretty much upon us, but um, you can see a way clear to a different model where if you're coming to Australia for study for either you know, a three-year degree 
uh, typically most students would stay. They, they might go back, you know, to, to visit relatives uh, between semesters, but typically they'd come here for three years. It is, there is a different value proposition about, oh, well, OK, I'll go into student accommodation. We're, we're in a lockdown quarantine it's a, a situation. It's sterile. We'll do our quarantine. We can start doing the study for the, for the semester. And then, of course, we're on campus. You can create a university sort of COVID-safe corridor with a university bubble. Uh, and government certainly, as the ministers have, have indicated, uh, are actively considering that with the vice-chancellors. But there again, uh, we will be guided by the medical advice in the first instance. Yeah, it's a bit early at this stage. Well, look, to be candid, if if we weren't... We're always watchful of a second wave or, or what is potentially a second wave and and certainly based on historical experiences, there's not a lot of data points, of course, for something as significant and as globally impactful as this, but but just the modelling, both the biology and, and the mathematics would suggest that you've got to be watchful of a second wave. Regrettably, and I'm not the clinical expert here, so I'm not going to declare it to be a second wave, but there's certainly a spike going on and it would probably be verging on reckless to, to introduce more risk by way of large-scale international travel. So given that it's late July uh, as we're recording this, that really probably takes out this semester. But um, we do have time to think about, subject, of course, to the conditions and the medical advice, to think about the first semester of next year, but obviously that's nothing that I can commit to on this mm, podcast. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Um, during a crisis such as COVID, organisations tend to either pull together mm-hmm. or fall apart. How have you aligned your organisation now and what steps have you done to make sure that they've pulled together? Well, really building on what I said earlier to, to David, because uh, of the machinery of government changes that, that created initially immigration and border protection and then, of course, home affairs, which was an even larger scale MOG, as, as we call it in, in our uh, business that you and I are involved in, uh, you do have those deep reservoirs of capability, skill, subject matter expertise around customs, around trade, around travel, immigration programs, uh, multicultural affairs, supply chains, critical infrastructure, aviation, maritime security and a number of the other ones that I mentioned to David. What we decided to do was we we had really two choices and, and indeed in terms of the home affairs implementation journey we'd been heading in this more cohesive direction in any event. You could say, look, the department's kind of a holding entity and you do your own thing and you really only come together um, at a fairly superficial level. You might come together for staff engagement, uh, you know, uh, 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 for HR purposes and for budget and management. That's one model. From the from the outset, uh, the leadership and I, and, and indeed whether or not we'd chosen this, it was the direction from the government in any event, but I think it's the right way to, to go said, no, what we want to do is become a truly integrated department where, uh, and this is a model probably that is not entirely well understood or at least instinctively appreciated in the public service, but it's certainly a model that you find in operational agencies. Who recruits you, trains you, deploys you is not necessarily who directs your operations. So just to take the military analogy, the military talk about that part of the military which raises, trains and sustains a capability and then a naval ship, for instance, and then that asset is then given to the head of operations and they mix and match the assets as are required. So you might have elements from the Air Force, the Navy, the Army. They're still Air Force, Army, Navy in terms of their pay, their uniforms, their career management, uh, their, their culture, 
uh, and their legacies. So the Australian Army traces its you know, legacies all, all the way back to the diggers of the First World War. But because you mix and match capabilities around the task that's required, defence, to take that example further, has got a more instinctive feel for what are known as joint operations. And the culture that we're building is the same. We're saying, yes, you might be your home division, to use that defence analogy of Air Force, Army, Navy, your home division might be immigration or group of divisions or customs, but where you operate, and it could be for three months, it could be for six months, it could be for three years, you're in a joint operational team. And so your operational commander or leader might not actually be your home FAS or branch head because you might be assigned, as I was saying earlier to David, to work to uh, problem solve the trucking curfew issue or the supermarket resupply issue, which is connected to that, or the disinformation issue. So we wielded together a team of people who were um, out, out of our media area, our comms area, our website area, but also our community liaison folks, who, who it's, uh, staff who work with ethnic communities. And we said, right, your task is countering disinformation. Now, that might not be your day job because you might not be in a section that's called the counter-disinformation section. So how you wield, mix and match your capabilities and bring those bricks together, which potentially might be for years in some cases, because some of these teams I suspect will be going through into next year and maybe, depending on how this situation unfolds, well into 2022 as well, or it might be for three weeks or three months. So the ethos and the, and the organisational culture that we're trying to, not trying, we are instilling, is that Yes, you've got a desk or you've got a, a workstation. That's where you put your bag down in the morning and, and that's where your home is. But by the end of the day, you might well be deployed onto something else. And if you embrace that, that's terrific. If you're comfortable with it without necessarily embracing it, that's wonderful. If you're challenged by that, we're going to be transparent with you because it's probably something that we need to work on together to get you to a point of either accommodating that or we need to help you to do something else because that mobility, that flexibility, that ability to mix and match organisational units, to, to wield these, wield into shape these larger organisational constructs is now our permanent way of operating. Mm. It sounds like your earlier experience in defence has been very applicable to the work you're doing now. Uh, more so, less so the Department of Defence and more so, uh, so I spent a few years in the, uh, in the, in the Army and in the infantry as a, as a reserve officer and, and just been in and around defence operations rather than the, mm. the Defence Department, but you get exposed to defence operations. That notion of joint operations mm. and that notion of you can go into a headquarters or into a work area and you'll have a space such as here where we are, um, uh, you'll have coalition members of many countries, you'll have uh, joint teams uh, of Army, Navy, Air Force and indeed civilians, including from the intelligence community, but you're all working to a common purpose. It doesn't matter what you, or your uniform is because you've been, as a team, been, been put together as a team with specialised skills to optimise all the skills that you put together rather than working in narrow silos. And I think the public service at large needs to transition from a model where you still have home divisions and branches because it also it's important to have a home base for professional development, career management, performance management, your payroll and et cetera. But you can wield on top of that very flexible um, working arrangements where you literally encourage your staff to think, when you come into work today, if it's an ordinary day, your KPIs, the things I told you to do last week or asked you to do last week, 
but it is possible that you'll be deployed onto another team. And when staff start to get engaged with it, they go, actually, this is in some cases quite exciting. In other cases, mm, okay, I, I, I can run with it. But you're being transparent and that starts to change the culture of the, of the organisation because it becomes an expectation. Mm, I think you're right. I think a lot of areas of the public service haven't been exposed to this before and are mm. for the first time during COVID. Yeah. How do you think we can harness the lessons that we've learned for, from that to take them forward? Well, indeed, uh, the Secretary of your department, uh, as the leader of the public service, we're having a secretary's retreat that Phil will, um, Phil will lead next week. In fact, it's one of the issues we're going to talk about is to what extent um, do we embrace this disrupted uh, environment and presume it to be our permanent, if not permanent, then semi-permanent state and not only embrace it in an, as an ethos, as it were, or as, as an environment, but embrace the organisational consequences that follow. Uh, and yes, yes, we need to have departments of state because you need to have accountability, you need to have budgets that are allocated, but increasingly we should be working in this much more flexible and fluid way. Now, we certainly do it within my department because I've got the authority to move the, the resources around. We're increasingly doing it across the Home Affairs portfolio where, the, uh, where myself as the secretary, along with the agency heads, have formed a portfolio board and we mix and match units all the time. Uh, the logical extension is to, and this goes beyond IDCs and even task forces, this is a very different way of working, which is akin to joint and coalition activities that you find uh, in national security practice. You're right, a lot of the public service has not been exposed to it. Initially, it's it's very bracing because it's it's very, people say, but, but my boss is my EL1 or my EL2 and I've got a good relationship with, with them and that's great. No one's suggesting that that should be broken and I don't like uncertainty, to which the response is, but the world is giving you uncertainty. So you can embrace that and just start to build it into your plans or you can resist it, but it's a false resistance because the world is going to win. The world wins that, 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 that struggle. All right. Uh, Megan, thank you um, for those questions. And, and to you, Secretary, thank mm. you uh, for coming in today. Uh, I what, didn't mean to try to pension you off earlier in the You call me distinguished, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what's next? What's the next big challenge? Obviously, you've been at the, you've, you've had your hands on this for a while. Um, what What's the future look like the, for you? The, the, the next challenge uh, is the same answer as what I would have given you yesterday <laughs> and the day before, and uh, Jacob, who's, who's here with me today, can attest to this. It's as I walk out, I'll, there'll be some WhatsApp group or some message group that I'm on and a minister or a group of ministers or, or the Prime Minister himself will say, I need you to do this. And uh, picking up the uh, themes I just expounded upon, the answer will be, yep, I've already thought of that. I've got the organisational team. Uh, it's, like, it's like those... Um, in, my, in my trade, we shouldn't call it a heist movie because we're not oh, like... Yeah. But it's the ethos <laughs> of a nation's team, right? Yeah, so. Okay. All right. Now, now, David, I, I won't suggest that you or I could play the could be played by either Clooney or Pitt, but the idea is, and we're not into heists because we do law enforcement, so we're on the other team. But the idea of mix and matching, uh, and I'm very passionate about this, yeah, in case you hadn't picked it up. Yeah, yeah, got it. Uh, so whether it's that sort of ethos that you get in, a, in those ocean series or similar, okay. you put the team together, you, you crack through on the task, and then you leave enough capacity when it's become routine and industrialised, and and those other teams then move on. So uh, you ask me what's next, it'll be on my phone, I suggest, when I walk out. Indeed. Interesting. I might follow you. It could be an interesting movie that you're involved <laughs> in. <laughs> um, thanks for coming in um, to Work With Purpose and, and thank you for your service. 
Um, now, listen, before we finish today, I would like to, on behalf of the program, and indeed, if I might be a bit bold on the panellists today, that um, that we send our best wishes and our thoughts and our prayers to everyone who's listening today from Victoria who is, you know, dealing with the impacts of this dreadful virus. For those of you who are in lockdown, we are with you in spirit. It's a difficult time, but we are thinking of you. Hang in there. It will pass and know that uh, everyone here in Canberra is thinking of you. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you are interested in discussions with experts um, from all over the world about the latest in government communication, and quite seriously, who is not, we have now over 230 episodes of that program available for you to listen to. So I would commend it to you. And indeed, um, if you do see the promotion uh, for this particular podcast, please uh, share, uh, review, pass it along because it does help us to get discovered. There was a massive response a couple of weeks ago to our uh, conversation with Rebecca Skinner and thanks to everyone at Services Australia who did such a great job in uh, commenting and liking and passing it along because it was just really fantastic for us to do. And I'm sure that there will be great interest in the uh, conversation today with the Secretary. But listen, the big guns keep coming here. Um, Gordon de Brower will be on with a national perspective and we'll be talking to Sharon O'Neill, who is the uh, Western Australian Public Sector Commissioner and Stake Recovery Controller. And coming up in the latter part of August, we have Chris Jordan, the Commissioner of the Australian Tax Office, and a very special episode with Dr. Stephen Kennedy, the Secretary of the Treasury. That will be something. And I can guarantee you now, um, Drew Baker from IPA, as I walked in today, Gave me a little bit of a hint of some of the things that he's got planned and that will be something special. Thanks again to IPA, ACT and to the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support. This program would not happen without the team here and the team back at the Content Group office. So thanks to you all. And the biggest thanks of all is to you, the audience, for coming back in such big and strong numbers. But for this week, that's all that we have for now. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment... It's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 